everyone. I'm Delilah Jones, the host of Imagine Publicity on Air, where I share featured guests from a variety of fields like authors, activists, and artists interspersed with occasional marketing tips for businesses, individuals, and nonprofits. Remembering tears of contrition running down cheeks, sometimes mixed with heavy mascara, begging for the Lord's forgiveness. They say, we have sinned. Please forgive us. We live in God's grace, but we're still asking for your donation for the Lord's work. While some evangelical Christian leaders are living in million-dollar mansions on TV and radio shows, property, airplanes, and theme parks, all in the name of Jesus, many have sinned through their worldly acts, and yet still the flock follows. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus is a living gospel and one of the grace and truth which people of this world need to hear. My guest today is Warren Cole Smith, who is the president of Ministry Watch, which is dedicated to bringing transparency, accountability, and restored credibility to the Christian ministry world. He served as vice president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and as vice president and associate publisher at World Magazine. He hosts the long-running podcast, listening in, and he is the author or co-author of more than a dozen books. His latest book, Faith-Based Fraud, published by Wild Blue Press, exposes church leaders in a way that points out the acts of a few whose actions have led to distrust, but on the other hand, its purpose is not to tear down the evangelical church, but to restore it to its rightful place of influence in the culture and lives of people. Welcome to the show, Warren. Well, thank you, Delilah. That was a great introduction. I don't know that I've got much to say after that. You did such a Oh, you job. have plenty to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it, it, let's just start out. Give us some brief background about Ministry Watch and, and why you became involved in this organization. Sure. Well, I've been involved in uh, uh, journalism and specifically in Christian journalism for about 30 years. You mentioned my involvement in World Magazine and the Colson Center. I've also been involved in other publications over the years. And as a consequence of that, when Ministry Watch was founded in 1998, they asked me to be on the board of directors, which I was uh, delighted to say yes to that request and uh, was served on the board in the early years of Ministry Watch. Uh, We're more than 20 years old founded by Rusty and Carol Leonard, who were um, Christian philanthropists philanthropists themselves, uh, who were looking for a good source of information about Christian ministry so that they could do the research that they felt like that they needed to do before they gave money away. Um, They couldn't find one, so they founded Ministry Watch. I was on the board. And uh, Ministry Watch has a database of now more than 800 Christian ministries. You can go to ministrywatch.com and and uh, get to our database. There's a tab at the top of the page that will take you to our database, and you can find out all kinds of information about uh, 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 the largest Christian ministries in the country. Not every Christian ministry, because there's more than a million uh, Christian nonprofits and or religious nonprofits in this country. We only track the largest ones. But uh, so we've got a database, and we also do investigative journalism as well. Uh, that's kind of what I bring to the table, Delilah. I um, have a background in investigative journalism. I did a lot of investigative journalism when I was at World Magazine, and have um, 
kind of brought that skill set to Ministry Watch. And so those are the two big things that we do. We maintain that database of financial information so that it's a good and up-to-date resource for donors. And also we do investigative journalism if there are scams and scandals going on in the church. And, um, yeah, I've been the executive or the president, rather, of Ministry Watch uh, since October of 2019. So after serving on the board, I went off the board. The ministry did its thing for more than 15 years before they hired me to be the president about a year and a half ago. What an important organization and something I feel is is very much needed, especially in times like we're in where, uh, you know, people people just don't have it, but they're still willing to give. And to know yeah. that their donation is going somewhere that's been vetted and, um, you know, looked into for any kind of um, – wrongdoing makes makes my heart at more peace so with faith-based fraud the book what were you thinking i mean taking on this subject of these church leaders and their fraud it's quite controversial what what motivated do you go in headlong to the lion's den so to speak Right, right. It's a great question, and sometimes I wonder that myself. You know, there, there's an old joke um, that I, 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 um, I didn't have enough friends, so I, so I became an investigative journalist, right, which is guaranteed to make sure you don't have any friends after that. So, um, well, you know, Delilah, honestly, um, two or three motivations at least, and, uh, and I would say that, um, you know, for one thing, uh, the the vast majority of that are involved in ministry in this country uh, are doing great work. They're living sacrificially. They are um, uh, having a tremendously positive impact on their local communities and in the aggregate when you add them all up together on the world at large. So I want to be really, really clear that I think that the vast majority of Christian ministries are just doing great work and their leaders are humble and sacrificial. But they get a bad name because of the very few that are out there in the world that are bringing discredit. And I think that uh, especially I, I happen to be a, a Christian and I, you know, uh, care about um, the, the Christian church. I'm not sure, you know, whether, you know, how many of our listeners will or won't be. But my point is, is that if we, if we as Christians are not willing to police ourselves, if we're not willing to say to those who are within the church um, that we care about having high ethical and moral standards. Uh, I think that we deserve the derision that we get from people who are not Christian. So uh, for those of you know your listeners, uh, Delilah, who are Christians, I hope that they will say, you know what, we have a biblical responsibility to care about the peace and the purity of the church. But for those who might be non-Christians listening into our conversation today, I want to, I want them to hear me say, listen, we care about this stuff too, and we're sorry that some of our own people are behaving so badly. Not everybody feels the way they feel. We're trying to clean this up. Please have some patience with us. Please show us some grace as we try to get our house in order um, because I think there are a lot of people that have been victimized um, by the evangelical church over the years, and um, and church leaders have largely been silent. And I'm just hoping that, that people, whether they're donors or victims or others uh, that are looking in on this conversation, will say, you know what, finally 
um, the church is interested in taking its own teaching seriously and cleaning itself up. So that's a big part of my motivation, not to tear down, but to build up to the world this idea that, you know what, we care uh, whether uh, our leaders have integrity, and we're going to start doing something about it. Excellent. Well, was there a singular event that basically was the line in the sand for you or just a culmination of disgraced evangelical leaders over a period of time that you became awake to what your role in this was going to be? Well, I don't know that there was a single event. I mean, I I was raised in the church myself, so I have had uh, – and, and I know, Delilah, before we, you know, went, on, went live here for our listeners, you mentioned that you lived here in Charlotte, and it was some of these stories were a trip down memory lane because uh, Jim and Tammy Baker, for example, lived, you know, they had their operation right here in Charlotte, which is where I live today and where you used, used to live. So, you know, I've been, um, I've had some exposure to a lot of these ministries over the years, and in some cases I've even been, you know, uh, benefited from these ministries. So, some of the the preachers that I write about in faith-based fraud have written books or had television or radio programs that I've benefited from. But you know that's that uh, has doesn't excuse though the bad behavior. And so uh, over time, I was just seeing the accumulation of one story after another. And and I think here's the key point. I started seeing some common threads, Delilah. I started seeing that, you know, th- most of these ministries, they might look different on the outside. There might be Jim and Tammy Baker or Jimmy Swaggart or uh, I don't know if your listeners will know names like Mark Driscoll or David Jeremiah, who are folks that are a little bit more in the mainstream of evangelicalism. They might be different in some ways, but they're alike in other ways. They don't have strong boards. Not, there's not transparency and accountability in the way uh, they do things. Uh, they, they engage in practices that even before the scandals occur, you could look at and say, hey, you know what, there's trouble coming because they don't do things like release their 990s to the public or they're not members of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. So what I wanted to do with faith, faith-based fraud was to – kind of tell the stories, but more importantly, extract the lessons from them. What do these ministries that get engaged in, that end up engaged in wrongdoing have in common, and how can we avoid that in the future? Right. And what's the history of, let's say, religious leaders of whatever denomination who created scandals within their church or within their flock. I mean, this can't be a phenomenon that's just happened in recent times, right? Oh, no, you're exactly right. In fact, if, uh, it's funny. Uh, when I was doing the research for this book, I left a lot of this out, um, Delilah. But, you know, if you look in our literature, um, you know, um, books like Elmer Gantry, for example, which was written in the early part of the 20th century, or Flannery O'Connor's novel Wise Blood, um, are uh, you know these are uh, stories that that have sort of permeated the idea of a, of a you know a, a charlatan preacher in some ways even think about the Wizard of Oz you know the man behind you know pay no attention to the man behind the curtain pulling all the levers right he was a patent medicine salesman there's there's something sort of baked into the American experience uh, where we both. Um, uh, from time to time create these big frauds 
and we also punish these big frauds, um, but we also in some ways are fascinated by them as well. Uh, we, you know, we, we in some cases turn them into folk heroes. That's one of the reasons why I began the book. The first chapter of the book is actually about um, – Ponzi, the the, origi- the originator of the Ponzi scheme, and um, I, even though his fraud really didn't spring out of the evangelical Christian church, uh, he did uh, take advantage of a lot of Catholics in the Boston area, a lot of uh, Italian Catholics that were uh, scattered throughout New England, and um, so there was a religious component even to Charles Ponzi's original Ponzi scheme. So I wanted to tell that story to kind of make some points about what what's called affinity fraud and uh, how we create trust and why we're fascinated uh, with these uh, fraudulent figures throughout history. Well, you know, with the birth of the non-denominational megachurch, which, what, probably 70s, 80s, this kind of came about – What's the state of mainline denominations that we're usually all familiar with, with Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Baptists? Um, what is their state of being as opposed to, I guess, the uh, non-denominational churches? Well, it's a great question, and I think you put your fingers on uh, on an issue. That's one of those issues that I wanted to kind of tease out of all these stories is that you're quite right. If you go back 100 years in American church history, the vast majority of churches were part of a denomination. They had structure. They had accountability. They had standards for ordination, for example. But as you rightly said, in the 70s and 80s, we've seen the rise of the evangelical megachurch. Often, these churches are completely independent. They're not a part of any denomination. The the church um, revolves around maybe a single charismatic leader. And I mean that, when I say charismatic, I don't necessarily mean in the Pentecostal charismatic sense, but just someone who has a lot of charisma, someone who's a great speaker, and um, to him, uh, in some cases, her. Uh, we have uh, stories of pastors like, for example, Joyce Myers or Paula White. They're not all men, though the vast majority of them are. And um, so, and, and the thing about this, Delilah, that's important is that is that they can grow very large. In 1970, according to Elmer Towns, who has studied church growth, there were only about a dozen. Protestant megachurches in this country, and by megachurch, I mean a church with more than 2,000 people in regular attendance. Today, 50 years later in 2021, we have thousands of megachurches. In fact, the nearest numbers that I can see are somewhere between four and 5,000, to the point where the megachurch distinction almost doesn't make any sense anymore. We, you know, we have mega-mega or ultra-megachurches, churches that have more than 5,000, more than 10,000. We've got churches in this country now with more than 20,000 people that are attending regularly on a Sunday morning. And, of course, they're all dropping money in the offering plate or giving online as it's becoming increasingly the case. And so we have churches. I'll just use one example since I live in Charlotte, um, Elevation Church. Here in Charlotte, it takes in close to $100 million a year and revenue. They're not alone. There are other churches that take in tens of millions of dollars a year. And so 
the, the rise of the independent evangelical megachurch outside of a denomination with very little accountability, dealing with huge sums of money, has contributed without doubt uh, to this culture uh, that we find ourselves in today. That's just staggering. And, you know, I would love to think that they're spending a lot of that money and giving back to the community and helping the homeless and the needy in their communities. But I I really, I haven't seen a whole lot of that. Have you? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I, and again, you know, like I said at the beginning, Delilah, I want to be really, really clear that that, you know, I mentioned that there are, you know, maybe as many as 5,000 megachurches in this country today. There are 300,000 churches in this country. The vast majority of churches are small. They have anywhere from 75 to 150 members, often working alone without any assistance, um, some, you know, sometimes not making very much money uh, either. So I want to be really clear that the, the vast majority of pastors and, and church leaders are living sacrificially, doing a lot of that great work in the community that you described. But yeah, you're right. There are these others uh, that are, you know, living large, so to speak. They're living in mansions and they're flying around in private jets. And, uh, and those are the ones that I think discredit and cause us to forget how much great sacrificial work is truly being done uh, by churches and Christian ministries in the world. In fact, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is not necessarily to draw attention to them, but to draw attention to the others and to try to eliminate uh, some of the excesses that we see in the few so that we could, you know, so that the world could really see that Christian ministry and that the church culture in this country is by and large one that is honorable and that we should get behind. Well, this kind of leads into you know the gospel of prosperity, where mm-hmm. if you if you're good enough, all these good things and all this money and everything is going to come your way. But if you're not good enough, well, then you just sit there and, and worry about it. But when did this all become so popular, and, and why are parishioners so tolerant of? To me, it's obvious greed. Yeah. Well, it's a really great question and a complicated question, so I'm not going to go into a very, you know, really deep theological uh, conversation about this, but I'll just make a couple of quick observations, Delilah, and then if, if you want, you can ask me some more questions. Um, I would say it began in earnest. I mean, I think it's kind of always been a part of the human condition that we, you know, we want to look after ourselves, and we, we kind of think of God as a cosmic vending machine, you know, we put our quarter in and we get, you know, our goodie out. And um, and that quarter that we put in could be, you know, what sometimes the televangelists call a seed gift, or it might be, you know, if we behave this way, then God will behave that way. Um, but, you know, that kind of vending machine um, transactional relationship with God um, is, is a it's always been a part of the human condition, and it has never been what Christian, what Orthodox Christianity really teaches. But it, like I say, it's been there. But it became, I think, more, much more prominent in the early, late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, there were uh, some phenomena that took place, the rise of Pentecostalism in the early part of the 20th century, uh, radio had a big impact, the advent of, you know, you and I are on this podcast, but, you know, our precursor radio uh, started to, you know, really grow in the early part of the 20th century. And some of the first people on the radio 
were preachers, TV, were uh, radio preachers, and people like Charles Fuller and even uh, in the Catholic world, Bishop Fulton Sheen. So this has been going on for a while, and whenever reach a mass audience in the millions, and keep in mind that in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, there were very few national radio networks. If you had uh, a radio program on the Mutual Broadcasting Network, you might be talking to tens of millions of people every week, and they're all sending you money. So there's that phenomenon, that technological phenomenon uh, is a big uh, piece of this, but I, I think that you know, what, what has contributed to it in more recent years has been television, Christian television in particular. It's just become this big, huge money-making machine kind of fueled by uh, this, the, uh, this pros- prosperity gospel theology that you mentioned. Uh, and I think the reason that the people in the pew are tolerant of it is because uh, we have a little bit of idol worship. If we've got our favorite preacher we want him to be prosperous. The fact that he is prosperous in some ways is an affirmation of the theology. I will give him money because I want what he is preaching to be true because maybe it will also be true in my own life as well. And so I think when a lot of people who are kind of seduced by the prosperity gospel and these preachers, uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. They, they, they preach this prosperity gospel. People give money. They become wealthy, and other people think that that could happen to them as well. Interesting. Do you think that over the years younger Christians perhaps became bored with religious liturgy and they turned more towards concert-type venues that are geared towards towards that younger audience, kind of like Willow Creek? What's your observation about that? Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, that, that is a parallel. It's kind of a different phenomenon from the prosperity gospel stuff because you'll see a lot of contemporary worship that's, you know, not in the prosperity gospel movement. It's kind of a different thing. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that, that um, the mainline churches, that you, as you described them a moment ago, the Presbyterians, the, the um, you know, Episcopal, Episcopalians in particular, um, they went into very steep decline in the 70s and 80s. They went into decline for a lot of reasons. I don't think it was just because of their liturgy, Delilah, and I'll say more about that in just a second. I think, honestly, it was because of their theology. Uh, they were becoming increasingly progressive in their theology. Uh, they were becoming um, less convinced, if you will, of the things that their own church has historically taught. And I think that people, and especially in the 70s and 80s, as the world became more fragmented and more divisive, I think people were looking for maybe a little bit more certainty than they could find at the you know, uh, local Episcopal church that was um, preaching kind of whatever the pastor wanted to preach on that particular day, or sometimes, you know, nothing at all that related to the Bible or to the gospel. So I think that there were a lot of problems with the mainline church. I don't think it was just liturgical uh, boredom with the liturgy. And uh, because if you look today, you're actually seeing a resurgence in conservative liturgical churches. There are branches, for example, of Presbyterianism that um, engage in a very um, liturgical services. Uh, I'm a part of an Anglican movement in this country, uh, which is a conservative group 
that uh, we we say communion every, or rather we uh, have communion every Sunday. We say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. Our service looks very liturgical, and yet we have young people flocking to our movement. So I, I don't think it's exactly this liturgical versus contemporary, this traditional versus contemporary. I think it has much more to do with theology and what you stand for and how uh, much conviction you have about the things that you say you believe and that has really created this dividing line but but all that said the net effect is you're right we have churches like willow creek that uh, have you know kind of grown up and of course i devoted an entire chapter to willow creek in my book faith-based fraud well let's kind of take a little twist here speak about evangelicals in the political arena what what have you seen grow over the years with the influence, whether it's political donations, whether it's endorsements, um, you know, whatever it might be, but we're seeing a lot more of religious leaders, you know, tossing, not necessarily tossing their backing a particular candidate here or there. Where's the separation of church and state come into that? Well, I, I, first of all, uh, I think it's important to realize that the separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. That That is an idea that, um, personally, I don't believe it's possible to separate church and state. Uh, the Constitution actually says that the state cannot establish a religion and cannot prohibit the free exercise of religion. So the the um, the, the First Amendment, is really geared towards keeping the the government out of the church's business, not keeping the church out of the government's business. And I think there's been a rich tradition in this country of people who have a strong moral, ethical, and religious compass um, being actively involved in government. And I personally don't think that that is a bad thing. I think what has happened recently, though, um, is a problem, and I write about it a little bit in Faith-Based Fraud. It, that will probably be more in my next book, Delilah. Uh, but, um, you know, it's this idea that uh, if you are a Christian, you must back a particular political candidate. Or if you back a, another political candidate, then that means you are definitely not a Christian. That's, in my view, a problem for the church. Because, again, just to sort of go back to my first principles as a Christian, the Bible says that to be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus. The Bible doesn't say to be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus and vote for a particular candidate or and oppose a particular candidate. And I believe that the, that the evangelical church has gotten itself in big trouble in recent years when it tries to tie its spirituality and its faith to a particular party or a particular candidate or even the opposition to a particular party or a particular candidate. I mean, I don't know how, another way to say it other than that is a classic definition of heresy. Whenever you are adding or subtracting from what the gospel message says, then, you know, if we were having this conversation not about politics but about some theologian, we would say he's a heretic. He is not an Orthodox Christian because he is trying to add something or subtract something from the gospel. And I think that that is what we as evangelicals need to do to those who are trying to conflate politics 
and the gospel in ways that are not helpful to this country, but most especially not um, true to the gospel message itself. Do you have to attend church to be a good Christian? Well, that's a that's a, a question that goes beyond the scope of my book, Faith Based Fraud. But I will say this, uh, Delilah, that uh, Jesus uh, encouraged us to um, be in. Jesus went to temple in his day. Uh, the Bible is clear and explicit in a number of places. I could uh, mention a verse in Hebrews in particular. It says, forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which means, yeah, you should attend church. Uh, I think the church is important. I think that if you are a Christian and you're serious about your faith, um, I think that you would want to um, be around other people who are serious about your faith. Listen, if I'm a Star Wars freak, I'm going to read Star Wars books. I'm going to go to Star Wars conventions. I'm going to watch Star Wars. Uh, and I, it seems to me that if um, we are as committed to the gospel and to Jesus and to his church uh, as we are uh, to other things uh, that we um, pledge our loyalty to in life, then, yeah, I think we should go to church. Now, am I saying are you not a Christian at all if you don't attend church, or does going to church make you a Christian? Absolutely not. But in my view, attending church, being involved in a local faith community is good for your community, and it is good for you. It's good for me, and that's the reason I do it. Even though it's hard, and sometimes it's a real pain, and there are a lot of Sundays that I don't want to go to church, and a lot of Sundays that I come out of church wondering what I got out of it. But I think, again, um, it's, uh, an, it's an important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to fellowship with his people. Well, I know your time's limited today, but I have one more question. In, in researching sure. the book and, or even in your experience, what have you found as the, like the motivating factor for the leaders to commit these fraudulent activities, and how can they be prevented? It's a great question, and a great question to close on as well. You know, uh, Delilah, I think the big motivating factor would, is just the desire for, and I, and I know this is going to sound weird, but let me unpack this for a second, the desire for autonomy. You know, uh, you're not the boss of me, and I'm not the boss of you. And, you know, to use the popular vernacular, people don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to have accountability. They don't like to have structure. They like to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And so I think that, that a lot of these pastors that are, you know, that have, we've seen get involved in scandal, they, they just they get to that point because over the years they have thrown off any attempts to create accountability and structure and it's important to remember that whenever we put barriers around an individual or around an organization, we're protecting the person just as much as we are protecting the donors or the victims of that organization. Because a lot of times people don't realize that they're slowly slipping into behaviors that are not good for them and not good for the church. So I think that that's the main cause. How you prevent it? I think um, if if you if our listeners here happen to be donors to uh, uh, any kind of a nonprofit organization, they should make sure that those organizations are releasing their Form 990s to the public. That's like a tax return. You can go online and find the Form 990 in all kinds of places, and you can even look at the financial information at our website, ministrywatch.com. 
Make sure that, that, that the organization has a board of directors that is um, independent. In other words, not made up of the friends and family of the preacher or the, um, uh, the leader of that ministry. Um, if, they're, if it's a Christian organization, ask if they have a statement of faith and read that statement of faith and make sure that you agree with it. If they don't have a statement of faith, why not? If they, again, if they're a Christian organization, are they members of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability? That's ECFA, and you can go to ecfa.org and find out who the members are there. They have a Find a Member button on their website. So there are three or four things that donors can do really simply and easily before they give money to an organization uh, to make sure that it's the kind of organization that they that they want. And Delilah, if I could put in a shameless plug here, anybody that's listening that is concerned about an organization, you've got some questions and you can't find information anywhere else, I wish they'd send me an email. I'd love to hear from them. I'd do some research and give them the best answer that I've got. Well, let's give out your contact information so people can get in touch with you if they do have questions. Well, I really appreciate you asking that question. Yeah, ministrywatch.com is the uh, website, and we've got all of our investigative journalism there. We've got uh, the database there, a lot of resources there for both ministry leaders and donors and just interested people. Um, and for me personally, my email address is real simple, wsmith, Warren Smith is my name, wsmith at ministrywatch.com. That email comes directly to me, and I'd be honored to hear from any of your listeners, Delilah. Well, I've got to say, faith-based fraud, you know, no matter what type of religion or faith you're practicing, I think it was quite an eye-opener. I think that, you know, people across the world need to have this information. I commend you for, you know, the, the work that you're doing through Ministry Watch. And we want you to know that you can buy the book, Faith-Based Fraud, through Amazon or through Wild Blue Press. Are there other places that you have it available, Warren? Yikes, you know, I don't know. That's a really great question. But I know that what you just said is true. Both Amazon and Wild Blue um, have the book uh, available, and I'm really excited. Uh, We'll have it in ebook version, hardback, and we're also doing an audio uh, version of the book, though, which I think will be out in early June. Well, I I enjoyed it and like we talked off air it took me on a on a ride down memory lane because i was very familiar with a lot of the characters in the book um so exactly I, right I, thank you so much for giving up your time today and, and coming on and and discussing this book with me and i look forward to doing it again someday you bet me too thank you Delilah. it's been great to be with you You too. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. Please follow Imagine Publicity on air wherever you're listening to this podcast for future episodes. Mm -hmm.